As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hello, everyone. Excited for another episode of Pro Se. Yeah, we've got a packed show this week. Yeah, a um, lot of interesting stuff to get to. The Supreme Court continues to follow the Alex Lawson undergrad pattern of putting off all the all the busy work, all the tough stuff to the end of the term. Um, in and- favor, in favor of, I would, I would argue, <laughs> you know, sports gambling or yeah, uh, right. you know, procrastinating in favor of watching sports. And that's uh, right. <laughs> that, that's right. Um, and that figures into uh, a little bit of what um, our main segment uh, focused on this week. I had a really interesting chat with our old friend, Zach Zagger about the high court's um, decision this week that dealt with um, an ex- sort of um, an expansion of payments to college athletes, but on somewhat narrow grounds, and it kind of sets the stage for a more uh, sort of sweeping battle over labor rights uh, and compensation for college athletes. Very interesting stuff. Um, hugely important decision. Uh, but there is a lot of stuff to get to before we get there. So um, yeah, I think we just um, get into it. Yeah. Yeah, Alex, I'm really glad you brought up uh, a reference to college because I'm going to take us to higher ed right away. Yes, of in course. Show. Yeah. So the thing I want to talk about is an update on what's essentially, you know, one of the big buckets or branches of ongoing pandemic related lawsuits that we've covered here in Pro Se. Harvard University beat a lawsuit by students who argued that they were owed tuition refunds for in-person classes that were forced online because of COVID. So federal district court judge Indira Talwani said that Harvard's promotional materials that like talk about how great Cambridge is and the campus, things where they tout hands-on learning and networking that you can do at Harvard as a student, those don't amount to a binding contract to offer in-person classes especially in the face of a global pandemic. They do amount to a binding bummer, though, because if you were (laughs) planning to go to college and then you just had to, like, do it all over Zoom, I mean, that's... That stinks. That stinks, but... Do you have to, like, mount a uh, brick wall with ivy on it just in your Zoom background? Right. Is that all you get? Um, But so what, what was the... Let's dive a little bit deeper into what the reasoning was for, you know, why that was not a, a contract. Yeah, so when this suit was dismissed, the judge pointed out that there are no specific documents or specific statements where Harvard promises to hold in-person classes regardless of extenuating circumstances. She went on to say that even if students could show some kind of implied contract for in-person learning like that during normal times, that, quote, spring 2020 was not a normal time. 
truer quote I've never heard. Yeah, well, it was right. Indeed, yeah. not a normal time. <laughs> Um, say, that is a that is as uncontroversial a statement as you can make these days. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, in addition to saying that, the judge also <laughs> threw out some claims filed by a law student who said he was forced to either interrupt his education by taking a year off or re-enroll last fall and pay full freight on for just online instruction. The judge said he basically knew what he was getting into by enrolling while the crisis was still active. He, and this is another quote accepted the terms of the contract for the fall 2020 semester, including the terms that instruction would be online only and that costs would be the same as the 2019-2020 school year. He has no reasonable expectation otherwise. Yeah, there's like a, there's lot, there's a confluence of a lot of factors here. Um, as the court acknowledges, uh, spring 2020 is a time that will ring in our minds for probably until we're on our deathbeds and all of that. Um, but there are complicated legal issues at play here, but I do we there have been some decisions before on this on this question of the interruption of your college experience and whether you're entitled to some financial uh, remuneration there, right? We've even talked about this very thing on Pro okay. Se back in April. Yeah. We discussed at that time a California judge who dismissed a class action brought by three law students who were demanding that Santa Clara University reimburse their tuition and fees for the same reason after their classes moved online due to the pandemic. So yep. pretty similar fact pattern there to what was argued in the Harvard case as well. The court's reasoning in that California one was also basically exactly the same, that the law school never explicitly promised students in-person classes. So where we've landed now is that we have a string of these across the country. So Massachusetts, California, Arizona, D.C., even some in New York, where schools have escaped these suits seeking tuition reimbursements when they went fully online. But we do have a few judges who've allowed this type of case to at least proceed to the next step, that they didn't dismiss them at an early stage. Notably, we've got one in Florida. There's also a New York federal judge that said Columbia and Pace University students had plausibly alleged that the universities breached a contract to provide access to a bunch of campus facilities and activities in exchange for student fees. So that one's not full freight tuition. That's yep. about some of the other fees associated right. with higher ed. So... Basically, where this lands us, since Harvard is such a, you know, vanguard school, probably the most famous institution in America. One of, the, um, one of our most famous universities that we have. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think it's a, a good benchmark here that yeah. we've seen the scales tipping away from students being able to claw back tuition for this reason. There's still a few lingering cases to watch to see if the tactic works for any students. But we're, we're getting more writing on the wall that this is not going to be a winning argument. Yeah, it'll be really interesting in terms of the more discrete questions that you mentioned before about, you know, if you paid for something, will that money come back? I'm sure there's all sorts of complexity and gray areas, but it does seem like the the full get your money back for the semester is not going to work. Um, OK, so for for our second story, we're going to stay. Um, this is really going to be an all school show. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're going to stay uh, stay in the school realm, but we're going to go from college to high school to talk about a, uh, a U.S. Supreme Court ruling yesterday about uh, profanity. And we should say there will be um, some use of profanity in the upcoming segment if you've got the. The kids in the car or anything like that, um, you have been you have been warned because this case, uh, much like the trademark case we talked about two years ago, centers squarely on the word. 
I don't know if Steve's gonna gonna bleep us out. Uh, we will see, I guess. But um, the uh, the high court ruled yesterday that a Pennsylvania school district violated the First Amendment by disciplining a cheerleader for a very very vulgar uh, social media rant. Um, uh, it was a pretty big win for this student and for student free speech, but it was. Somewhat shorter, short of of a ruling that schools can never regulate stuff that happens off a campus. I mean, when you get past the initial like, haha, this is the vulgar cheerleader case. There's yeah, really right. some pretty uh, meaty and weighty issues that the court was weighing in on here. So what was this case really all about? Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, I said very, very vulgar. It wasn't that bad. She used three <laughs> F-bombs. That was really it. Um, I was going to say, I mean, I've, you know, I, I've heard you say worse, Bill, right, but right. Uh, whatever. Certainly. Um, <laughs> so the student here was a woman named Brandy Levy, uh, and she was a high school freshman in um, a town in Pennsylvania called uh, Mahanoy. I don't know how you pronounce it. Uh, I probably should have looked that up beforehand. Yeah, yeah but well, I mean, this is this is your neck of the woods. This I don't is, know what these people uh, right. it's, it's It looked like it was about... Um, uh, about an hour and a half outside Philadelphia, okay, and um, sort of up by Scranton, and um, um, so she tried out for the varsity cheerleading team and the right field spot on the softball team. She did not get either of those things that she had tried out for, and she was pretty uh pretty ticked off about it. Relatable. So she, she headed to a local convenience store where students from the high school would congregate, and she signed into Snapchat as one would. And she posted an image of her and and a friend with their middle fingers raised at the camera with the caption, fuck school, fuck softball, fuck cheer, fuck everything. So I was wrong. It was four uses of uh, of the F-bomb. Honestly, who hasn't been there? You have a tough day. I I, I, I post this on Snapchat about Law 360 every day. <laughs> well, and, well, and I certainly would have done stuff like this if, when I was in high school, had I had the opportunity. There were no. Right. This I mean, was not not, uh, not, this to not get available all, like, to me. Yeah, yes. not to get all like boomer about it, but I do thank my lucky stars that this kind of technology <laughs> did not exist when I was a teenager. I think it all the time. Well, look, yeah. I mean, I I would have put up a really angsty away message. I think on yeah, oh, you know what? Yeah. That's, yeah. A that That's a good call. Right. Yeah. Um. But so she uh, that was the first post. Then she posted again. Um, the, it was sort, it was a blank image, but it said the caption said, love how me and um, it was another student uh, get told we need a year of JV before we make varsity. But that doesn't matter to anyone else. Um, the caption also included an upside down smiley face emoji, which was noted by the esteemed justices of the Supreme Court. Love it. OK. Love a discussion of emojis. Yeah, that's um, great. Yes. Uh, so word got around about the post. It's a pretty small town. Um, eventually, it made its way to the coaches and other school administrators who suspended Levy for the entire next season for violating a team and school policy against the use of profane language. Um, she apologized. She tried to sort of walk it back. Um, that didn't work. They stuck to this punishment for her. So she and her parents headed to federal court. Um, where they argued that the school had violated her First Amendment rights by punishing her for speech that had taken place off of school grounds. This argument worked at uh, a trial court and an appellate court um, where she won on this First Amendment argument, which prompted the school to bring it to the high court. All right. So, you know, we're we're, we're having a little fun. I mean, I mean, it's obviously a very colorful case. There were a lot of eyeballs on it just because of the circum- the the like. It, there's like a low entry point in terms of relatability. It was like this 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 young person, 
you know, was was aggrieved by some slight from right. the school, sounded off about it. It was very relatable. And then it, and then it explodes into this huge legal controversy over the First Amendment. We get to the high court. What did they have to say? So uh, yesterday on Wednesday, by an eight to one vote, the justices ruled that the school had, in fact, violated the First Amendment when they did this. Um, yeah. So it all goes back to this 1969 ruling, Tinker v. Des Moines. If you've ever taken, uh, you know, a, a media law class or a First Amendment class, you've probably read about Tinker v. Des Moines. Um, the in that case, the Supreme Court said that schools do have this sort of special interest in regulating on-campus speech if it causes a serious disruption to what's happening in school, to class, to you know the way that a school is supposed to function. Here, the justices said that that principle can sometimes give schools the right to regulate off-campus speech. You know, they cited severe bullying, threats of physical violence, um, serious cheating that is happening off-campus that involves, you know, directly involves schoolwork. But they said that the right is very, very limited and should be scrutinized by courts. And um, they gave sort of a list of reasons for why that right to, you know, regulate the way that students are speaking off-campus is so limited. The first was that schools are very rarely acting in loco parentis, you know, in the place of a parent when a student is off campus. That is a role they they formally fill when a student is in school. They are responsible for the student, so it gives them a little bit more power. Second, um, when you're regulating a student's speech off campus, a student is either on, off campus or on campus. Yeah, right. So if, if, you're, if, <laughs> yeah, right. if you're regulating both, then you are regulating their speech 24-7. So from sort of a policy perspective, that's not a great outcome. Yeah. And finally, um, uh, I should mention, it was Justice Stephen Breyer who wrote this ruling. It's a, um, a pretty interesting opinion. I would suggest everyone go read it. Um, but he had a very sort of interesting, almost poetic thing where he was talking about that public schools are these nurseries for democracy. And yeah. they need to set an example that, that that there is unpopular speech out there and we can't just quash it because we don't like it or it, it bothers us. That you have to set an example for, for the students that are coming up through your school that, um, you know, this kind of stuff is OK, even if even if you don't really like it that much, um, it's not something that you can just. <laughs> Silence. So he sort yeah. of he 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 ran through those three factors for how courts should look at this in the future. And uh, here was the sort of sum up quote: Taken together, these three features of much off-campus speech mean that the leeway the First Amendment grants the schools in light of their special characteristics is diminished. We leave for future cases to decide where, when, and how these features mean the the speaker's off-campus location will make the critical difference. So. He then applied that to the current case and said that Levy's conduct was certainly not enough for the school to have done what they did, that the the school couldn't really show that there had been any disruption really at all, that it was, you know, there there was some interest in in preventing profanity, but not nearly enough to overcome what was critical sort of anti-school. You know, she had a message, even if it was this sort of silly Snapchat post. It was, you know, if you view it in the abstract, it was, she was criticizing the school. She was criticizing the administrators. Um, And I I thought that there was this final quote from Stephen Breyer um, and I'll get us out on this, but um, to, you know, because we've sort of been, you know, we've been laughing about this case. It's a high school student. They're on Snapchat, (laughs) everything else. But um, uh, Breyer sort of talked about what we've been saying, which is that, You take those facts, and they mean a lot when you think about them in the big picture. Quote, It might be tempting to dismiss the students' words as unworthy of the robust First Amendment protections discussed herein. 
but sometimes it is necessary to protect the superfluous in order to preserve the necessary. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. The Supreme Court unanimously approved expanded payments to college athletes this week, striking a serious blow against the NCAA's amateurism rules. The ruling is a narrow one, but it likely opens a door for a head-on battle over athlete compensation. Here to discuss the decision and its implications for college athletics is Law 360 senior sports reporter Zach Zagger. Welcome to the show, Zach. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. It's, it's been a while. Uh, we're so glad to have you back. Um, I want to get into the case. So I feel like uh, from a distance, the issue of athlete compensation um, in the in the NCAA is often framed as a labor case or like a labor dispute. But this case is about antitrust. Um, and I think that's a good place to start. What is sort of the backstory of the case that came before the court this week? Yes, well, uh, Monday's decision in NCAA Alston uh, v. Alston was really the culmination of about a decade of uh, legal challenges to the NCAA's so-called system of amateurism. Yeah. Uh, mainly, this had centered around these class actions in California federal court on bringing uh, on antitrust law claims, and uh, they were alleging essentially that um, the rules that the NCAA uses to enforce uh, amateurism to are basically agreements by all the schools to limit or cap what they can be paid. Yeah. Uh, and in the first case, O'Bannon uh, v. NCAA, that started as an, a case over the likenesses of players in video games, the popular right. EA sports, yes. college and football games. And parts of that settled, but uh, it, it went, did go to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit said, well, NCAA, your rules are anti-competitive. They do restrict what players get. Um, you know, but there's, you know, there's some reasons to keep it around. Uh, there's just no reason to cap that what they get at below what it costs for them to go to school. So colleges, yeah. you know, have to give them, you know, enough money that like or can give them enough money uh, that, that, that covers the entire cost of going to school, which was about a few thousand dollars more than what they were already getting under the, the NCAA rules. Um, and then this this before that case was even finished, though, this case was filed. It started as what was called the grant and aid litigation. because yep. uh, and, and that's a term of art for the, the, the grants and aid, the scholarship and aid packages that players receive. Um, from the colleges. And it was basically saying that, you know, all of the rules that limit that, uh, limit what the schools can provide, uh, violate antitrust law, and that, you know, it needs to be overturned. That without these rules, schools would be able to compete, offer better packages, uh, stipends, uh, more scholarships, whatever, uh, in order to attract the best recruits. Instead of using all that money to build better facilities, pay more coaches, pay coaches higher salaries, some of that money would be used to directly compete for the recruits by, in their scholarship by, by giving them better scholarship and aid packages. And so that, that, that's how this case came uh, came about. Uh, and it ended in a, in, a, in a ruling that went to the Ninth Circuit right. uh, that said essentially, well, you know, there's some reasons to keep amateurism around, uh, similar to the O'Bannon case, um, but the NCAA hadn't shown 
why it would be necessary to limit broader payments that are tied to education. And so that that ruling, you know, said uh, opened the door for a number of other types of payments that, that college athletes can receive. But the NCAA still said that, like, they they didn't like that, that that could open the door to too much. And they challenged to the Supreme Court. And, you know, we ended up in Monday's decision. Yeah, well, and that brings us up to speed there, I think. Um, so we get to the high court. I mean, this is we'll talk about the sort of narrow sort of uh, guardrails around this decision a little bit. I mean, you mentioned that this deals with payments to athletes that are directly tied to their education, which is not the, quite the same as compensation for the for the revenue they generate. But um, keeping it within that perspective, that was what the Ninth Circuit ruling was about. The NCAA lost at the Ninth Circuit, and now we get to the high court. Um, and uh, as I said at the beginning of the segment, it was a unanimous ruling. Um, what exactly did they say? Yeah, so the lower court had basically opened the door to a number of different types of education-related payments uh, that could include compu- money for computers, musical instruments, tutoring, internships, and even these cash academic awards. Uh, so they could about six six thousand dollars in cash payments for you know being good at school. Uh, the the NCAA though had a, had argued to the Supreme Court to say, hey. All of these arguments, uh, you know, they're really questioning our authority to, to to regulate college athletics, and you know, we're we're not a commercial enterprise like the NFL or like yes. the NBA. Okay, we're different. You know, we oversee college athletics, which has numerous valuable benefits beyond economics. Yeah, right. And and I think that you know, they're specifically they argued, you know, uh, amateurism serves the socially important non-commercial objective of higher education. It, right. Yeah. And and so so the Supreme Court, you know, had the opportunity to issue a really broad ruling or to say, hey, no, but but they rejected that argument. And they and, mm-hmm. and they said, you know what, uh, NCAA, that's all fine and good. But just like any other business, you know, we're going to look at you the same way and we're going to apply the antitrust laws the same way we would anywhere else. And I think Gorsuch even said to them, he's like, you know, if you want to make those kind of arguments that because of the special characteristics of your industry, feel free to go make those to Congress, which the NCAA yeah. is doing. But they're not going to they're not going to hold water here in the, in the federal courts. Yeah, I remember when we talked about this, uh, we talked about this on Pro Se when um, the oral arguments were made. And I remember thinking at the time that the and I think I even talked to you. I, I I I talk to you about these cases all the time. That I remember the the NCAA was kind of like, at least at least in my view, was like appealing almost to emotion more than like the letter of the law, where they were trying to talk about the integrity of the of the amateur system and of education. And it just doesn't sound like that got traction with the high court at all, right? No, it, it didn't. Uh, I think uh, even in the opinion that uh, Neil Gorsuch wrote, yeah. he said it was kind of confusing what the NCAA was even asking for. Here sure, because right. Yeah. In some ways, they had won the last case. I mean, the 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 the, the lower courts didn't overturn amateurism. They only said that schools could give you know provide more ed- education related benefits, which yeah. seems to serve the important purpose of education. So it was kind of confusing in that way. Um, uh, you know, but the, that gets to the limited nature of the Supreme Court's. Ruling. Yeah, I wanted to yeah. talk about yeah. this a little bit. I, I because we've we've gestured at it a couple times here, so now we know that yeah. the the NCA can't claim this antitrust exemption. Before we talk about the sort of bigger picture implications, let's let's drill down a little more precisely into like exactly what this ruling on paper means for NCA athletics. You've referenced a couple times. Yeah. 
education-related expenses. What does this ruling actually look like, um, like, in practice for, you know, major uh, college athletic programs? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, at least the opinion of the court, it, it hewed closely to uh, that lower court ruling about education-related pay. Uh, and I think specifically that allows reimbursements for computers, musical instruments, tutoring, internship stipends, cash academic achievement awards. These yeah. had all been you know, very closely monitored by the NCAA. They had argued that even with this limited area of payments, yeah. schools would be able to compete for athletes with – you know, you know, various like levels of awards. Like, what, what what's the limits on these? Yeah, you can awards? see them saying like, yeah. okay, we'll give you like five thousand dollars for a computer or something. Exactly, the, or like, but, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll yeah. pay for graduate school, and like that could be sure. a lot of money. Yeah, right. so. So the, the the court really just you know affirmed that ruling with an emphasis on saying, hey, in this case, this this ruling you know makes sense, and we're going to keep that. Uh, but NCAA, you know, these other arguments about you being completely free from antitrust law, that that's not completely true either. So this ruling in and of itself isn't going to lead to to schools paying athlete or the schools straight up paying athletes right, or, for, right. or for them making money from their name, image, and likeness. Um, but it will open the door for them to to make, uh, to make be given a lot more educational value, uh, well, educational type uh, expenses. So, okay. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's certainly a big ruling in that regard, and it raised a lot of eyebrows among people who have been following the college um, athlete compensation fight for a long time. Um, but um, I know that the conversation is already moving, is already advancing past this ruling. Everybody's always looking forward to the next thing that happens. I know that Justice uh, Kavanaugh filed a concurrence here that a lot of people have seized on as like kind of like a table setter for the next phase of the fight, which I think is just sort of people envision an actual direct compensation for your labor different than just, you know, paying for a laptop or for some kind of education expense. Um, what, what did Kavanaugh say in that regard and what can we expect to come next? Yeah. So, uh, Kavanaugh's concurrence was really interesting in that he kind of, you know, took it a step further and it really serves as a warning to the NCAA that, you know, you're you going to have to relax things or change the way you operate because if these cases keep coming up into the courts and they make it up to the Supreme Court, we're not going to look upon these restrictions too favorably. And, and, and he really took it to the extreme, viewing this as a complete labor market and that the schools are competing with one another for yep. the best athletes, uh, just as if it was the NFL trying to uh, get the best you know, draft picks. Um, or, or, or attract the best free agents is, is a better uh, analogy. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he says, you know, nowhere in American business can an industry get away with, like, not paying their workers on the theory that, well, not paying our workers is what defines our business. It, it, yes. He, he called it circular. And he said the NCAA is not above the law. They're going to have to come up with some reasons why they need to keep this. And honestly, if you follow his line of reasoning, there's not a lot of legitimate reasoning that the NCAA can provide. Uh, and so I think it, it, it should serve as a warning. I don't know if it's actually going to, but it should serve as a warning to the NCAA right. that things need to change. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that the college sports are completely done. I mean, there's different things that could happen here. The NCAA could, you know, decide to, instead of 
enforcing all these restrictions. They could just focus on let, let, let's make sure that all the players are are, are, are um, uh, actual students. Yep. Uh, the Supreme Court agreed, and even Kavanaugh agreed. Like that's the one thing everyone can agree on that college sports are made up of students. So let's worry about that. Let's let's enforce academic requirements. Let's enforce that kind of stuff. Let's not worry about the economics too much, and maybe allow the schools or the conferences to set their own rules. And you know if if the NCAA isn't doing it on a nationwide basis, then there's still competition between the schools or the conferences. And then that wouldn't raise the same sort of antitrust issues. It's uh, it's a hugely important issue. Um, and there's a and this is a tremendously significant case in that regard. Um, thanks so much, Zach, for uh, yeah. coming on the show to talk us through it. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. to end our show with something offbeat and Alex I think you're taking us back to lawyers behaving badly yes one of the canonical offbeat uh, uh, genres we're, we're back um, right up there with right up there with zoom mishaps that's right yeah now it, you know zoom my favorites uh, it, we do have zoom mishaps <laughs> lawyers behaving badly but I like it when it's um, musicians ripping each other off that's, that's actually sure. my favorite that's true that's true and if 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 indeed we are transitioning out of zoom mishaps um, maybe. Um, I hope that that will maybe lead to an uptick in lawyers behaving badly just for the purposes of our show. In any case, what we're talking about this week are some pretty explosive allegations against a Lewis Brisboy associate uh, in Chicago who is, who has been accused of faking more than 2,000 hours of pro bono work uh, in order to receive a bonus from the firm. Uh, so uh, <laughs> when yeah. I said, well, when I said lawyers behaving badly, uh, I mean, now I feel sad. 2000 pro bono hours. Like it's pretty despicable pro bono, more like no bueno. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so these, uh, what we're yeah, talking about. Good. Yeah. Well, you know, if you have to affirm it yourself, you know, it was like, sick as hell um in any case um what we're talking about this week are um allegations in a complaint from the illinois attorney registration and disciplinary commission which is sort of the that is the illinois uh bars sort of oversight board and these are allegations that were filed against an associate named john paul palesny who is a lewis brisboy uh associate and basically, uh, it says that in order to hit a benchmark that was needed to qualify for a quarterly bonus, uh, uh, this guy Pelesny filed about two 2,000 pro bono hours, despite the fact that the case was dismissed more than a year earlier. Um, oh, jeez. Now, the firm did not pick up on this initially, and they paid him... About twelve grand in bonuses, uh, based on what turned out to be these false representations, at least according uh, to this complaint. Uh, now, if you are not, if you are not so versed in the complexities of legal ethics, I feel comfortable telling you that when you say you've done pro bono work and you have actually not done pro bono work. 
this is not good. It's a um, complex. It's a complex ethical question. <laughs> you know the whole the whole issue of lying about a case that didn't exist. Okay. Yeah. So we've made a lot about how it's pretty. It's a pretty terrible move to fake pro bono work. I mean, that's you're supposed to do that because you feel passionate about helping people and of using course, the lottery yes, that way. Yeah, yeah. But I will say this about it. It does make sense to me that if you are going to be the kind of unethical person that is lying about some hours that you've spent to hit a bonus mark at your firm. Yeah. This is probably the most logical thing to lie about for just the simple reason that clients would question if you were by 2000 hours. Oh, for over sure. Over billing them. So yeah. because this is a free service provided by you as an attorney and your firm, um, that. I think is probably why this was the target. Now, yeah. <laughs> Amber, you did say, you know, pro bono is supposed to be about helping people. Now, you know, one who does this does want to help themselves. So that, you know, they, they you know, that's, wow, really stretching here for right. sure. It was a, uh, it was a pretty interesting case. I mean, this, uh, the firm had represented a, um, uh, a uh, man who was imprisoned. He was an inmate who claimed that he had been fired from his job in prison as an orderly in the law library, which is like sort of that, like a lot of law firms seize on work in that regard. I mean, law libraries and prisons have, has been a, uh, uh, a point of emphasis for a lot of access to justice advocates in the past. This inmate had claimed that he was fired um, after he complained to the warden um, about some new policy. Um, this guy, Pelesny, at the firm, had be, uh, began working on the case in September of 2018. The case was dismissed uh, in December of 2019. Um, and then shortly thereafter, like I say, he logged more than 2,000 hour, uh, hours after it was dismissed. Uh, again, according to this complaint from the disciplinary board, um, the firm <laughs> stopped representing this inmate uh, in early 2020 and did not pursue an appeal. Um but Pelesny allegedly continued to document these hours, purportedly drafting, editing, amending motions uh, for this dispute about him being fired from the law library in the prison. Um, this has all been alleged by the IARDC. Um, it now gets sort of funneled up into the Illinois court system where he could face Obviously, very serious uh, professional sanction if these allegations are found to have merit. So I don't want to give any go. tips to bad actors out there, but <laughs> it does yeah. seem really stupid to have the case clearly be dismissed. And you have a date certain for that. And unless you're alleging that you're working on an appeal um, or an amended complaint or something, I mean, you can't just be like billing time where the dates don't match up. He had to think on some level this would get found out eventually. So what you're saying, Amber, is if you do want to <laughs> oh, lightly man, defraud... Oh, man, i made a big de mistake here. <laughs> defraud your law firm, you got to be smarter about it. you got to... <laughs> we, we, we always get back you know to it, this. Like, yeah. You know, like, fudge, fudge the hours <laughs> on individual cases. Just, you know, take a little more time to think about how you're going to rip off the law firm. I think the big takeaway lesson from all of these kinds of things that we talk about so often is... If you're the kind of person that's smart enough to get away with it, you're probably not going to do it anyway because you're already a good lawyer. You don't need to fudge things. So that's where where I land, at least. We've all sort of tried to prop up our, you know, I mean, you 
you try and make it sound like you've done certain things, but there are, you know, I mean, there, there, there are certain, you know, sort of Rubicons that you can't cross. And I think 2,000 hours of work that completely did not happen is probably uh, 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 pretty close to that. So I don't know. Alex, are you writing about any trade deals that were completed in 2019? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I mean, yes. I, the, you know, this this that stuff happens behind closed doors and is harder to and is harder to document uh, when there is a sort of firm dismissal, as there was here. It's a little harder to. Uh, <laughs> To, to wriggle out of. But anyway. All right. Well, that, I hope our listeners take away the lesson to stay on the straight and narrow about their pro yeah. bono hours. Pretty bad move to to lie about something that's so, it's such a nice thing for the profession to do. So I, I just hate to see people doing this stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, I mean, you know, uh, firms are, are quick to tout their uh, pro bono efforts. Uh, and we hope that there is sort of firm oversight of those claims uh, going forward. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, a really hairy story out of Chicago there. Well, thanks for bringing that one to us, Alex. Good being with you today. Thank you. And also Bill. See you next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Zach Zagger, and our contributing reporters, Chris Villani and Celeste Bott. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left us a written review. It makes our day and helps other people find the show. And if you want to read more about anything we've discussed today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.